Welcome to Old Fashioned Finance, the podcast that mixes cocktails and high finance. I'm your host, Jason Demland, and I am joined as always and in the future by my good friend and fellow money muddler, Caleb Frankert. Jason, can a podcast about finance be entertaining? Not without alcohol. Well, all right, let's mix it up. <laughs> hey, Caleb. Hi, Jason. <laughs> How did your horse do this weekend? He had to be shot. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, folks. It's Kentucky Derby time, or it was Derby time this past weekend. So hopefully some of you got the Seinfeld reference out of that. If not, you'll need to go back and watch the Festivus episode. It's required watching, not because it's pertinent to finance. It's just comedy genius. It absolutely is. And it does sort of tie into our episode today, loosely. Everyone gathering around the Costanza's table for the annual Festivus airing of grievances Elaine asks about how her horse did at the track, because of course her bookie was there too. And he just responds with a very deadpan uh, response. He had to be shot. So how does that factor into our episode (laughs) this week? Well, it's going to take some acrobatics to get there, Jason. But this past weekend was the Kentucky Derby. It's fitting that we are drinking mint juleps today. Mm. And as you may know, the Derby brings out not only big hats, fancy dresses, garish suits but also the gambling crowd (laughs) ah yes gambling a lot of folks think that the stock market is a form of gambling caleb but we are going to set out to debunk that theory today we will set out to do that we'll see if we can debunk (laughs) it um did you watch the derby this weekend no and you didn't either for one simple reason oh really and what is that well Uh, we are recording this episode in advance, so the Derby hasn't happened yet, but I plan to watch it. Yes, we are the, uh, (laughs) the Derby ghost of past from the future. (laughs) Thousands of years ago. (laughs) Before the mint julep. (laughs) Oh, so funny. So true. Um, our listeners didn't need to know that, did they, Jason? Look. It's early on in this relationship, Caleb, and I don't want to start out by hiding information from our listeners, do you? No, no, you're absolutely right. We do owe them. They are listening after all, and we appreciate the heck out of that. So (laughs) Uh, since we are in the past, maybe we should start up our old tradition again. Do you and the family want to come over to watch the Derby this year? I'm making juleps. Yes, for we know in the future the past has occurred. (laughs) Whatever, I'm for it, man. (laughs) Yeah, it was a good time. Uh, (laughs) I had a lot of fun with it when we did it that one time, so it's a tradition now. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) you know, I want to do that, but do you know that I had the privilege of attending the Derby one year, and I had my first mint julep at Churchill Downs. It was about about 10 years ago. Wow. Yeah, I for, I totally forgot. Was it that long ago, though? Ten years, really? Yeah, yeah, dude. Time flies. But yeah, my, my wife's aunt and uncle live down there. They graciously invited us to attend with them uh, shortly after we were married. Is that That's more than ten years ago. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> yeah, not only, yeah. Not only there, though, did I have my first mint julep. It was my first dose of bourbon culture, really. I fell in love with bourbon mm-hmm. uh, while in Kentucky, right there. I had my first bourbon milkshake, and I toured the Labro and Graham Distillery. Ooh, yeah. bourbon milkshake. <laughs> I like bourbon. I like milkshakes. Therefore, I would love a bourbon milkshake, right? Was it Was it as great as it sounds? <sighs> I wish, man. I'm I'm the descendant of many dairy farmers, and there are scarcely more people in the world that love milk 
and milkshakes more than I. Uh, but the bourbon milkshake was not a symphony in my mouth. <laughs> uh, it was it was confusing and weird. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I wish you hadn't told me that, man, because in my head, it was glorious. Um, <laughs> I have yet to go to the Derby, and surprisingly, I haven't been there. You know, my wife uh, grew up, well, I shouldn't say grew up, but she spent five years really close. Uh, her, her dad's job moved them to Winchester, Kentucky. So they were pretty close to the action down there. And we've always talked about going. I haven't made it yet, but I do really want to check it out. I kind of feel like the Derby, in a way, just kind of signals the start of summer. And it seems really fun and classy and all that. How was the experience down there? Was it was it as much as, uh, as fun as it was cracked up to be? I think so. The weather wasn't the greatest when we were there. You know, it's a, a kind of a crapshoot in April. It was muddy and a little gray. But the hats, they were top notch. They were off the yeah. chart. Uh, I caught glimpses of famous people's entourages. Uh, <laughs> everybody was gambling, and yeah. it was like it was like Woodstock on the infield. There, <laughs> it brings out all sorts, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, man. There were some really classy people there. There were also people having races on the tops of the porta potties. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! Uh, how would you like to be in the porta potty whenever they were doing that? <laughs> and I think some people were. Uh, it, that'd be scary, but you got to do your business. Yeah, something tells me they were probably drinking Natty Lights rather than mint juleps. <laughs> that could be, though. The bourbon flows like spice from the planet Dune there. Ah, uh, yes. Louisville, where the bourbon flows like beer and the beautiful women instinctively flock like the salmon of Capistrano. I'm talking about a little place called Louisville. Oh, Louis. What? Louisville. Whoa. How? <laughs> Wait a second. Say, say Louisville for me one more time. Louisville. All right. Louisville. How would Tom Brokaw say Louisville? Attention, never. How'd I go into Sean Connery? Oh, is that what that was? I don't know what it was. Louisville. They, they do. If, okay, so I've spent some time in Louisville, and you have too. And if you would say Louisville like I just did, they'd look at you like, what, what, are you, what did you just say? Well, Northerners, Yankees like us, will just say, it's Louisville. Hello, we're, we're in Louisville. Louisville, yeah. Uh, emphasis on the ville. Um, the one thing I take out of it is the, the vol. Vol. Yeah. You know, Almost like vol. Yeah. That, I don't know. They don't. It's King King Louis, right? That's who it's named after. So it I, should be Louisville. I guess, yeah, Ville. Louis, but Louis uh, City. there's a lot of vol. I think they huh. say vol in the South. I don't they're know. They're just they're well, more relaxed. Listeners from the South. Hey, <laughs> the times that I have been in Kentucky and I have visited numerous times. Ask my wife. I am blown away by the level of politeness that I have oh, experienced yeah. there. I have had my best time in a Walmart in Kentucky. <laughs> I, and driving on the road, people are so courteous, it's dangerous. Like, yeah, I'm going to turn left here at this intersection where there's no stop sign. And the person coming, oncoming traffic will stop and be like, no, go ahead, bro. It's all right. Yeah. And you're <laughs> up here. You wouldn't think of that. You'd be like, you're messing up the flow of traffic. Your, your <laughs> politeness is going to cause a pile up. Uh, I love it in Kentucky, though. Oh, yeah. I, I really, uh, you know, drinking this mint julep makes me think of the John Prine song, old my, my old Kentucky home. Oh, yes. Um, even though it's not my home. I just when I go there, I sort of feel like it's home. Maybe 
Maybe I just fit in better there. I don't know. Mm -hmm. So anyway, let's talk mint juleps. Although uh, this episode could have gone in some other directions like, uh, you know, Triple Crown and Crown Royal (laughs) (laughs) or the flying horse and airline points. Wait, what's a flying horse? It's mostly vodka. Gross. But I guess both of those are gross, man. (laughs) Or what about Campari Part 2, a deep dive into the toilet bowl? (laughs) You're going to alienate all of the Campari fans. I know they exist. All of them? I know that they're out there. All of them. All of them? We are the uncultured swine that don't get it. I'm convinced. Uh, let's just talk about the subtle beauty that is juleps and how investing is not gambling. Okay, I can get behind that. Let's do it. Well, let's talk a little bit about the julep. So uh, David Embry didn't write about it, which that was our kind of go-to for a lot of these things. So Uh let me turn to arguably the main man of all cocktails. Like if you know about cocktails already, you're probably not listening to this podcast. But <laughs> if you already knew about podca- or p- cocktails and cocktail podcasts, he might have one. David Wondrich is like the foremost authority on the history of the cocktail. And he's got a book called Imbibe and I've got the revised edition. Man, his prose is excellent. He's just really fun to read. And it, the, the history of cocktails is fun in itself. And the way that he mm-hmm. puts it together is great. So cool. he actually released this book in Bible, I think in 2007, and didn't write about the julep almost at all. He went back and he did a little more research and he's like, holy cow, this might be America's cocktail. Uh, there are references wow. to it in the, in the uh, revolutionary times around 1770. So the julep has a rich and American history and it's awesome. And it probably didn't start with whiskey. So we keep finding that out when we do a little. Yeah. Uh, the julep. If I had to guess. Because it seems like when we go back and we look at these, a lot of them were brandy-based drinks rather than than whiskey. Yeah, I think brandy was like the fancy drink back then. Like, you could get yourself some brandy and it felt better. But Mm -hmm. really, the julep at its base is just a sling. Really, the name julep is probably a big joke that just turned into the name of the drink. A julep has an etymology that is, it's medicine. Julep is medicine. And it was used... As a word for medicine, for a long time, Wondrich goes back and he's got it from, I think, the year 900. Kitab al-Mansuri book has it as medicine. Um, juleps were medicine. Uh, up until about the 1700s when people were like, hey, you know, it'd be funny. Let's, we're Americans, so let's make a joke out of our drinking so it's okay to do it whenever we want. So take your medicine. This is a julep. You know, you got to take, take your brandy in your julep. We well, got men in there, so it's good for you. That's funny because in the old West times they did use uh, booze as kind of a, a medicine. You know, like if you were uh, if you were shot and they were removing <laughs> a bullet, they uh, made you suck down some whiskey and bite down on a leather strap. And at least that's how I've seen it in every spaghetti western every, I've watched. Yes. <laughs> I, that well, they wouldn't put it out if it wasn't true. So no, I mean you get a bullet hole in you, you dump a, like a shot of whiskey or so into the bullet hole, drink the rest. <laughs> And then you bite the strap or you bite the bullet and let the doctor just yank it out of you. Bite the bullet? Bite the bullet figuratively to get the bullet out. Well, you'd bite the bullet literally to get the bullet out. Like they'd put a bullet in your mouth to bite down on. Like with the pain. Yikes. Yeah. When my my wife was going through labor last time, I was like, hey, let's get a bullet. And instead of pain medicine, you just bite the bullet. Okay. Yeah. That didn't happen. Didn't happen. All right. 
Well, <laughs> so that's I mean, that's a basic history of the julep. It, you did start with brandy. There's actually mm-hmm. brandy and rum. Uh, really, uh, ice didn't become a main feature of the drink until the early 1800s. Uh, Wondrich posits well, that, that makes sense. Well, yeah, they didn't have a big availability of ice. So before it was really just a sling. It was syrup and liquor mm-hmm. and a little mint. So it was a mint sling. Um, but yeah, Wondrich traces it through the millennia and actually about Civil War time when uh, brandy became scarce because of uh, blockades and, and so forth. That's when whiskey started getting used in the julep. And uh, and Jerry Thomas, who's like the 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 main man of bartending in the late yeah. 1800s, actually had the whiskey julep uh, as his primary recipe. Uh, and, you know, it just gained popularity from there. Uh, mint juleps now are, are related with the Kentucky Derby for us. And we think about it because uh, Woodford Reserve sponsors the Kentucky Derby. They're the official bourbon of it. They got their yeah. mint juleps. It's a whole tradition. But that's not that that's not that old. Uh, that goes back to the 90s. Oh, really? Yeah. So uh, that's a little bit on the mint julep. It's it's pretty cool. There are so many competing recipes. Really, it's important to muddle some mint and some sugar mm-hmm. and a little water and then add your spirit and then put a lot of ice in there. Usually crushed or cracked, you know, and, and some people get real shaved ice put on there and you can really oh, yeah. decorate it nice. A lot of these recipes that I was going through uh, have a lot of decor added people they're using silver cups and they're using uh, uh special designs of mint leaves and berries all over the place and you know, it's pretty neat it seems like a fun drink because really it's a very simple drink and it is so good yeah it is it, so it's good. it's amazing it's been a long time since i've had one probably derby time last year i i always i don't know i i have fun i i mix one up while watching a little bit and I'm not a big horse racing fan, but it's just kind of, you know, you get caught, caught up in the spectacle and everything, but it's probably been since this time last year. And man, I forgot how good these are. We are drinking the Woodford reserve, uh, recipe right off their website. Actually. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to share that or actually you, you give it, you mixed them up today. You're the, right. I'm giving Let's... the podcast. You're the t- bartender today. <laughs> <laughs> so what we mixed up today uh, is uh, basically two ounces of straight bourbon whiskey. This is coming from Woodford Reserve's website. So uh, I usually make it with Woodford because uh, I guess I bought into the advertising gimmick. But um, <laughs> Woodford's good stuff too. Uh, but two ounces of, let's say, Woodford Reserve, a half an ounce of simple syrup. By the way, we reference simple syrup a lot. And um, if you don't have simple syrup, A, you can make it. It's two ingredients, sugar and water. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you can put a cube of, of sugar in the glass and muddle that with everything, uh, add some water, and you get the same effect. Bourbon, simple syrup, some fresh mint leaves, and crushed ice. That's that's pretty much it. Some people, um, and, and I guess as your the instructions might be more important. I shouldn't say more important than the, than the ingredients because the ingredients are the most important, but um, you have to, uh, what they call, uh, express the essential oils. And there are various ways to do that. You use a muddler uh, to kind of loosen up the oils and the leaves. Um, some people slap the leaves. It's, that sounds ridiculous. It's I, I usually slap the leaves. I don't do know. Do you also um, ask them to release their essential oils? Yes. I ask their permission. I thank them for their <laughs> sacrifice for my drink. <laughs> so you express however you like to express your oils uh, in the mint leaf. Rub them inside the glass uh, or, or use your muddler uh, with the simple syrup in there. So you add the rest of your simple syrup. 
you throw the bourbon in and the crushed ice, you stir it up, fill it up to the top with some of that crushed ice or shaved ice, throw a fresh sprig of mint in there because when you take a drink, you get that mint smell, that really powerful mint smell, which, you know, a lot of our taste, most of our taste comes from the sense of smell. Um, so I think having the mint in the glass, I don't know that I taste the oils, but I, I get a whiff of the mint when I drink it. Some people also put a little bit of powdered sugar on the top of all of that when they're done. We didn't do that. We didn't have any powdered sugar, but I imagine that that would be delicious. Yeah, probably. And it seems sweet enough, the the ratios that we used, but man, it is refreshing. Oh, and so the joke of it being a, a medicine seems to have gone through history, but there is actually a prescription that one doctor wrote for mint julep that mm-hmm. uh, that is hilarious because it's written... Like like an old timey prescription, but the fun the the final instruction is repeat the dose three or four times a day until cold weather. <laughs> so wow, this is a great drink to enjoy all summer long. It is so you know, refreshing. My doctor has never said that. It might be time. Well, uh, I don't know I don't if know. your doctor is named Quacken Boss MD. <laughs> that's uh, uh, that's from a Wondrich's book, but the source is Harper's Monthly, eighteen fifty seven. Is that where the term quack came from, maybe? <laughs> I think hey, Yeah, this guy's quack. out there prescri- <laughs> prescribing juleps all over the place. I don't think he has a degree even. <laughs> it was just it was just awesome the how how I think Americans have a tendency to name things like this like having a co- like we we called having a cocktail in the morning taking your bitters just as an excuse to drink. Like this way you can just drink. Uh, yeah, it kind of sounds like taking your vitamins. Make yeah. sure you, you eat your Flintstone vitamin, you take your bitters and you head out the door. You know, we got gra- grandpa's old cough medicine. Like, uh-huh. oh yeah, just take take some whiskey. We just have cocktails as me- as medicine, and I think uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of truth to that. It's medicine against the dreariness of life. Yeah, right? medicine for the soul a little bit. That's right. Give you a little joy, and uh, the julep man, it really does it. This recipe is great. I'm excited to try all those other ones. Yeah, I'm I'm for it. Um... I wouldn't mind trying the uh, the brandy uh, with. I saw brandy with rum on the top. Brandy saw, mixed with rye, yeah, uh, which, which um, could be awesome. I saw a gin julep, a, mm-hmm. a gin mint julep. I don't know what that. I mean, I guess you got to try them all to see what you like. It's a winning combo. It's <laughs> ah, it's well, great. The, the key thing you you uh, mentioned there is to enjoy, and we encourage that you enjoy responsibly. I sure am enjoying this. I enjoy the derby, the pageantry, uh, all of it. You know, I'm totally buying into the gimmick. I think it's fun. Well, Jason, transitioning into our finance topic for today. Again, we talked about the pageantry of the, the horse track and the big hats and the cool suits and the betting. A lot of folks think that that's what we do for a living. Legalized gambling, the stock market. Mm-hmm. What do you have to say about that? No, that's wrong, and there's many reasons <laughs> why it's wrong. I get, I get the uh, the comparison though, because a lot of people do use the markets like they use a casino or like they use the mm-hmm. racetrack, um, and uh, a lot of people jump in for fun with a new hot trade, like they think I got they got a big tip and they're going to buy whatever the latest stock is or or commodity and. They're going to or t- cryptocurrency, yeah, whatever it is. They're going to tell their friends when they hit it big, like, hey, I bought Bitcoin when it was two hundred dollars a coin. Yeah, that's awesome. But then it's always yeah. like, well, when did you sell when it was three hundred? Well, good job. <laughs> it's at fifty thousand or whatever. <laughs> so um, the same with the casino, though. People 
in my experience, they go to the casino, they have fun, they justify it by it being fun. We'll talk about the the moral uh, stance on gambling, maybe, maybe, maybe this podcast. I don't know, but uh, the they they do it and they're having fun, and they're not going to tell you when they lost their shirt. Nobody wants to brag about that, but they're going to tell yeah. you when they struck it big, when they hit when they hit those far odds on the slot machine, or they got they got that card on the turn that saved them or, or whatever it is. So it's a little similar there. People will talk about their big wins in stocks, but they rarely talk about their losses. They rarely talk about how they took a a conservative sell because that's what their plan was. And the most disciplined Mm -hmm. traders that I've known or followed, they always have a system to make sure that they're not risking too much. So they're usually being a little more conservative, but that's not as fun. That's not as exciting as gambling (laughs) as uh, getting in on the the newest short squeeze that Reddit told you to do. Yeah, it's not as fun to talk, you know, with your buddies sitting around the TV or sitting around the infield drinking juleps. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, it, it's uh it's you you hear about the big ones, you hear about the home runs, you don't hear a lot about the singles and the doubles or the times that you lose, which um, you know, I I encourage clients a lot of times that have that stock picking itch. Or that you know, I don't, I don't want to call it gambling, but you know, those guys that are really looking to hit it big. I got this hot tip. I, I think we should get in on this. You know, I always tell folks, you know, I'm managing your real money, the money that matters, the money that's earmarked for retirement. We can't screw up here. You know, we might take a, a, a portion, a couple thousand bucks, and put it in what I call a mad money account, and say, pick away, you know, at your your heart's uh, desire. Just go have fun with it. Tell me about the winners. Don't tell me about the losers. Hopefully, you get that out of your system. You always hear about the winners, but uh, what you find more often than not is for every winner, there's three or four losers. Most investors, uh, individual stock pickers, end up somewhere around even or worse. Uh, actually, <laughs> you know, maybe this is going in a different direction, but uh, when you look at the statistics, you know, the S&P 500, which is an index that we use to gauge the overall stock market, the economy, you know, on average, does anywhere between eight to ten percent a year. The average stock picker, average investor doing things on their own does about two. So that should tell you right there that stock picking, while everybody's got some winners that they can talk about, there's enough losers to drag them down to reality. Yeah. So this could easily turn into an active versus passive investing strategy show, and we're going to do that in the future. But right now, uh, let's talk. We continue to talk about investing being not gambling. And I think a lot of people that want to do individual stock trading on their own really discount the level of expertise and knowledge a lot of professional stock traders have, whether they're a portfolio manager. And yeah, there's a Mm -hmm. ton of them that do a bad job or really underperform the indexes versus just you know buying and holding a basket of stocks or bonds. But there's a lot that goes into fundamental analysis of a company, checking out their their financials, the ratios, doing technical analysis, even if people are going to do that. And I don't have anything against that. This is not a this is not a podcast for traders. We're financial planners, so we're helping regular folks that uh, investing is not their primary job. Um, but what I, I want to make sure that we give these traders their due. These these guys that have systems in place to cut their losses, to make good decisions, to do what they need to do to make money investing. That is not the same thing as your uncle who's like, I just learned <laughs> about Bitcoin. I'm going to buy some of it and I bet it's going to take off. 
Uh, it's that's not the same thing as a guy who hears about something that might be cool and wants that that thrill of being in on the ground floor. That is a lot more like gambling than yeah. the trader. Oh, the the penny stock guy. Yeah, yeah. If it goes to zero, what did I lose? And I had fun. That's gambling. <laughs> yep, exactly. Uh, so, like you said a little bit ago, this could turn in. I mean, this could go a lot of directions. It could turn into an active versus passive. You know, you could go into systems for stock trading and things like that. You know, Investors Business Daily has their can slim approach, which a lot of people subscribe to. Jim Cramer has, you know, on Mad Money, he's got his system. We're not going to go there. What we'd like to do today is really kind of lay the groundwork. And I think that people that approach the stock market as if it's gambling, don't truly understand what the stock market is. So we're going to talk very basic. We're going to get into what the stock market is, what function does it serve, what does it mean to own stock, those kinds of things. So yeah, Jason, it's, just it's, just starting out. Oh, go oh, ahead. It's, I was just going to plug in there that it's just it's the talk about investing in the stock market rather than playing the stock market. Yeah, investing versus trading, yeah. quite simply. Let's start on the ground floor. What is the stock market? A lot of people call it the casino. It's not that. What is the stock market? <laughs> Those people are selling gold. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Episode 2. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we what is the stock market? I, Caleb, what is the stock market? Well, it's a market, okay? What it's a is place a for market? <laughs> It's a place for buyers and sellers to come together and essentially determine a price for an asset. So I think that's really key. We're talking about an asset. We're not talking about fictitious numbers on a a chart Mm -hmm. that go up and down for no reason. We're not talking about something that moves just because of momentum. We're talking about an actual creating an actual market. Uh, There is a security. There are buyers. There are sellers. And there's got to be a way for those two to come together. Yeah, there's several different kinds of markets uh, for stocks, and we don't need to get too technical. Investopedia exists. It's a great resource. The internet will teach you more about this uh, in greater detail, but it's important to know that this is a place where real companies, real goods, real services are exchanged, and the price is set by uh, supply and demand for the most part. We can t- we let's not talk about market manipulation right now and the pros and cons and how that works and front running and all that. That does play a part of this. It is not the main part. So mm-hmm. there can be daily, intraday fluctuations that are impacted by, um, you know, bad actors by you know com- hedge funds by communities that are doing <laughs> technical things to pump their stock or, or, or that sort of thing. So we're not really addressing that. We're just getting down to the fact that what the stock market is at its base is a place where you can buy and sell real things. And a lot of those real things are pieces of ownership in a company. That's the, that's the equity side. Uh, yeah. And at a fundamental level, that is the definition of equity. We hear a lot of folks talking about uh, you know, where they should be investing in equities comes up. You hear equities mm-hmm. and you think, well, that's stocks. The, the base word there is equity. Mm-hmm. What is equity? It's ownership in a company. It's stake in a company. And I tell people all the time, a company that is creating revenue, mm-hmm. that is selling something to a consumer, that is that is generating some kind of a return, 
So I, I think it's really easy for folks to take a look at their statement. And when it goes up, they're happy. When it goes down, they panic because they look at it as nothing other than a fictitious number that shows up on a statement. And there's no hard asset tied to that anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, going back to talking about the markets and what they are, you know, we typically will track the markets and, and what's going on uh, by looking at different indexes. You know, some examples of indexes, the, probably the most famous one out there, the one that we look at the most, There's, I'd say there's two. Mm-hmm. Uh, we look at the S&P 500. We look at the Dow Jones or the Dow 30, it's called now. Um, and those are basically a collection of stocks that are, are put together for the purpose of really kind of a, as a barometer of how the overall economy is doing. Um, there are different indices out there, such as, uh, let's say the Russell 2000, which is small caps. There's, there's a lot of different indices to track different economies within an economy, if you will. Mm -hmm. But this is a way to kind of track. And and I think that you can judge your portfolio based on what these indices are doing to make sure that you're, you're keeping up. But again, the, the primary focus, I think when we're talking about investing is that if we're investing, we are buying part of a company, we have ownership. We're not really going to get into bonds a whole lot today, but even even when you talk about bonds, if you own a bond, that means you lent a company money and they're paying you back with a coupon rate or a, you know, I don't want to even say the word similar to an interest rate, but you have something of value, something that's generating income, something that's generating a return. It's not like putting your money on black or red and spinning the wheel. Caleb, how is me buying a share of a publicly traded company like Walmart or Johnson & Johnson, how is that not gambling since I have no control over them? Maybe I become a shareholder because I buy through a mutual fund or an exchange traded fund or I buy the stock directly into into my brokerage account or in in my my IRA or something like that. But how is it not gambling? Aren't we just buying it and hoping that it goes up? Well, hopefully we're not just buying and hoping. And I would say that when we're talking about investing and, and, you know, I don't want to pull the curtain back too far, but here at our firm, we don't typically make individual stock recommendations. The reason for that would be you brought up Walmart. Okay. I think everybody would, uh, would agree that Walmart is a big successful company. And, uh, you know, even through like this COVID pandemic and, and good times and bad times, they've shown that they can make money. So when we talk about a gamble, I guess the gamble there is that you're putting a lot of eggs in one basket. If you're just buying Walmart, you're putting a lot on one individual company. Let's say it's not Walmart. Let's say it's something else. You you could you know you could go out and pick the wrong stock. Let's say that you pick the uh, stock in the right industry. You pick a stock in the right sector. The market does well. The economy does well. But you're not doing well because maybe the company that you bought uh, doesn't have the right fundamentals, or they poorly handle money, or maybe their business strategy is no good. You know, when you talk about gambling, I would say that buying an individual stock by itself is more like gambling than, than the way that we typically would recommend uh, to invest, which would be diversifying, quite simply. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hear that term all the time, but what does it mean? Well, you know, in our portfolios, we're typically using ETFs and mutual funds that are basically a collection of stocks. You know, you might hold 250 to 300 different positions inside of a fund. The reason that you would go through a mutual fund or an ETF would be, let's say, for average investor to go out there with $10,000 and broadly diversify their portfolio buying individual stocks, trade costs might eat them up. Or who has time to go out and analyze 250 to 300 different companies? No one, unless you're a professional trader or, or a portfolio manager. Um, so I guess to take some of that gambling um, feel away from it, we recommend diversifying. Mm-hmm. 
Did that answer your question? Sort yeah, of? kind of. I think so. I keep coming back to investing as ownership. Uh, you know, Warren Buffett is a really good investor uh, that a lot of people look up to. And his whole strategy has been predicated on buying companies, stock in companies that he wants to hold for more than five years. He's like, if I think he said something along the lines of when you're looking at a company to buy, uh, buy a company that if the markets shut down for five years and you couldn't sell anything, you would be okay with holding five years from now. Well, that forces you Mm -hmm. to look at long-term prospects for a company that you are investing in. And I think you hit the nail on the head earlier when you were talking about companies are generating revenue. These companies that are publicly traded have an obligation to their shareholders because the shareholders are the ones giving them money in order to own part of the company. They need to make money. That's that's their obligation to stay in business. They need to make a profit. And well, usually and uh, but uh, (laughs) they they need to do right by their shareholders. So you're owning a company. Wait, are you I guess. Are we talking about Elon and the crew? Uh, there's a lot of them, <laughs> like like we work and venture venture capital and angel investing. Oh, has changed yeah. a lot of that, but not so much on the publicly traded scale. So, like you could break it down and just imagine, you're like your small town, like you're gonna own a portion of you know the hardware store and the pie restaurant mm-hmm. and the furniture store and the coffee shop, and of all of their profits, whatever they are, you know, quarterly or annually, like you get. Is, is the company worth more this year than it was last year? Well, then your investment is worth more. Or do they pay a dividend and you got money from them because they're like, thank you for owning. Here's a return of some of our profits. Are you profiting that way? It's just that on a bigger scale. And yeah, there's risk. So just because there's risk in something doesn't mean it's gambling. Like you, you're, yeah. you're living every day. I'm not going to call that gambling, which is just leaving things up to chance or tempting fate. Investing is making a sound decision. It is doing a little bit of research or or hiring somebody to do that research for you. Like if you have a portfolio manager or somebody that's designed a an indexed ETF or mutual fund or or if you yourself mm-hmm. are trained and competent to do fundamental analysis on different companies and and you know about that stuff. Well, that's an inv- that's investing. I know people all I I've run into a lot of successful small business owners. And when they come to me for financial planning, I talk to them and where my value is, is the non-investment areas of financial planning. Like I can help them with some risk management, some things they haven't thought about, some estate planning topics that maybe they've overlooked. And and I can talk about some tax strategies that maybe they've never gotten into for the future and planning on that. But when I talk about investing with them, they're like, hold up. Why should I put $3 million of my money with you? to only get an 8 to 12% return a year when mm-hmm. I could put it into my business that I'm doing whatever that is it could be buying and selling real estate it could be it could be buying and selling companies and fixing them up and kind of flipping them later it could be building cell phone towers those guys are getting 300% return on their money that they invest in that but the level of risk that's their only investment the level of risk is really Their eggs high. are all in one basket. Yeah. We we hear it all the time. I, it's funny because we hear it from folks a lot of times who uh, work with multiple financial advisors or they have some money at, you know, Vanguard or Fidelity and then they have some at the bank with their bank advisor. They have some with their independent RIA and they say, well, I like to spread things around because I don't want all my eggs in one basket. It's funny because you talk about like the business owner who says, 
why would I settle for eight to 10 when, you know, when I can get 25 or 30 in my business, that's fine until you can't and realize that if you were building a portfolio of companies, you wouldn't put everything into one company necessarily. <laughs> if you're an so, entrepreneur though, your risk meter is already broken. And the reason these, <laughs> well, that's true. The reason these guys don't, they don't, they're not afraid of having all their eggs in that one basket that is their one business, which is akin to owning only Walmart. Like you have, you're just yeah. like, I live and die with this company. Well, these guys live and die with their own company that they control and they know the industry and they know the market and they feel more comfortable because they know more about it. But that's the key right yeah. there, being comfortable because you know. And I think that that's why so many people look at the stock market as a gamble because they don't really understand what it is. They don't really understand what they own. Mm -hmm. Something I've always said when I meet with clients and, and I look at, let's say, an outside investment statement or portfolio, a lot of times I'll turn that statement around and I'll say, okay, describe to me what you own. Okay, for the clients that can describe to me what they own, which is, I mean, not a lot, but for the ones that can, I'll ask, why do you own it? And if they can answer the first question, they usually can't answer the second question. So the key there, you know, is knowing what you own and why you own it, not to be a portfolio manager, but you kind of, I always look at it from a behavioral standpoint. If you get the idea, you can get through the ups and downs. And I think when, when things are down, it sure feels like a gamble. Mm -hmm. When things are up, it feels like a rush and you feel like you're a genius for picking the right stuff. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of folks out there over this last year who took, you know, a, I think a, a pretty good idea about this time last year and said, look, the market's getting hammered for no real reason. For and, and, I, and I'm not calling COVID no reason, but we, we all knew it was going to be a temporary disruptor, if you will. And I think a lot of people looked at that and said, the market's getting destroyed, but why wouldn't I still own these companies? So they went out and they bought up a bunch of underappreciated assets, which, which is smart. But I think here on the other side of things a year later, the returns for some of them have been phenomenal. And now you've got a lot of people out there who think, wow, look at how good I am at picking stocks. <laughs> I must be really smart. Well, have you run into that? What do you what do you feel about that? Well, yeah, of course. Those are the only people I ever hear from are the people that <laughs> that have done an awesome job. And you know, we're old yeah. enough to to remember the Great Recession, and we still have folks trickling in that are like, "Hey, I I went to all cash at the bottom of that recession, at the bottom of the bear market, yeah. and I'm thinking I should get back in now." And I'm like, "Oh man, dude, it's been 12 years of really." For the most part, it's been rocky, but hey, we are way up. I, I don't even I don't have the numbers in front of me. We're way up from where we were at the bottom. Way. <laughs> so you missed out on a lot of growth. Well, the S&P, just to give you an idea, the S&P went down to about 6,500. And today we're trading at over 4,000 in the S&P 500. That is a lot that you left on the sidelines. Yeah, it's. And a lot of it is just because we we don't understand what we've got. So when the value goes down, it, it just seems like it's magic. You know, just a fictitious number on a statement. That's not what it is. That's the wrong attitude to have about investing. We talked a little bit about what it means to own stock, the definition of equity. We talked a little bit about how you make money in stocks. You know, we talked about the value of a company going up through what we call capital appreciation. Mm -hmm. Dividends, like you mentioned, which is basically sharing profits. That's all tied into the value of a stock. If you've got a company who's paying a consistent 5% dividend and prevailing interest rates at the bank are 0.25, that's an attractive company. That's going to increase the value or what somebody's willing to pay for that company that's generating that income. Mm -hmm. 
So to draw the comparison between gambling, if you look at a company that's consistently performing and kicking off a good dividend, has a good growth trajectory, is it gambling to buy stock in that company? Well, that's entirely different than saying, okay, I'm going to double down and see if I can roll a seven on this one. <laughs> it's a completely different idea. When I look at the stock market and is it a gamble and you know, we look at it and think, well, it can go up, it can go down, it goes all over the place, it moves wildly, things pull back sometimes for seemingly no reason. Where do you find uh, a little bit of comfort in the fluctuation? I look at history as a guide. Yeah, though prior performance is not indicative of future results, as every disclosure... Boy, that sounds like a disclosure if I've ever heard one. Every disclosure we've ever heard. (laughs) um, What else are you supposed to look to to see how stuff may perform? So history's got to be somewhat of a guide. We know that it's no guarantee that that's going to happen again. But yeah, man, I look back at the history of of indexes, of companies, and the United States stock markets have been through some heavy times and we've got history through mm-hmm. that. We have the dot-com crash, the, that bubble bursting in, the, in early 2000, 2001. We have the Great Recession. Those are both recent history. We got Black Monday on, on 87, that crash. We got, of course, the Great Depression itself to look at, we've got data through all of these times. And really, when you look at that, the, the more you know, the more confident you are that if you invest for the long term and you diversify, like you own a lot of different things, these principles are standard. You need to have them in investing. You're buying and holding. Your time horizon is long. With knowing that, I'm very confident of solid returns there's definitely going to be some risk. The biggest risk of investing is needing to take your money out when there's a big drop. And you can mitigate that by having an emergency fund or having some cash available for things you might need or using sinking funds. If you're investing for the long term, when something like COVID apocalypse happens in March of 2020 that nobody was anticipating... You can it's a black swan. You event. can be the guy that's like, hey, I guess I've got this extra money to put in. I maybe I will put it in because everything is artificially low right now. Like, I don't think mm-hmm. whoever it is, they could be like, I don't think retailers are gonna go out of business during COVID. Some of them might, but it's worth buying because it's a good company. They're in and they went up 60 or 70% in one year. That's awesome. You can be on that side of the table if you've got all of your risk mitigated and you're using a good broad diversification. Uh, like modern portfolio theory. Look that up. It's worth a Google. Uh, that's that's the base of it. <laughs> well, you know, you talked a lot about historical fluctuations and things like that. I think of a couple of sayings, you know, they they say history repeats itself. It doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it, it tends that's to rhyme. That's Mark Twain. Uh, you, didn't, you didn't invent that. <laughs> I didn't. No. Um, I love Mark Twain. Even um, Huckleberry Finn. But, you know, I, again, looking at uh, some of these returns and, and uh, looking at history as being on our side. So we're coming down the home stretch here. I want to share some numbers. OK, maybe this makes you feel a little bit better. But when you look at, let's say, uh, for example, the S&P 500, I'm going to take market returns and I'm going to compare it to casino odds. <laughs> and you decide. You tell me if the market is a casino. Okay. Uh, so going back to what you said about the covid crash, you know, in March, Here's the deal. In a month or two, we were almost all the way back. It it really didn't last very long. But the question is a lot of times, well, what if it doesn't, though? What Mm -hmm. if it doesn't? Well, history is on our side. When I look at the S&P 500 and I look at rolling averages, so this is, you know, they look at uh, data on a monthly basis. Rolling averages, typically, 
on any one year rolling uh, month period, 75% of the time, the S&P 500 has been positive. That's going back to 1926, I believe. Okay, so there are some bad times in there too. The worst rolling period was negative 43%. Now you would feel that in your 401k, okay? However, we talk about investing, not trading. That's long-term. You hit on five years, like Warren Buffett said. Buy stuff that you would want to hold in five years regardless of what happens. Let's look at five-year numbers. 87% of the time, any five-year point-to-point, you've got an 87% probability historically that you're going to be positive. With the worst five-year rolling period, negative 6.6%. Nobody likes to be down 6.5% on a five-year investment, but that's not the end of the world. We get out to 10 years. Time is even more on our side. We're looking at a 94% positive rate with the worst 10-year rolling period of 3% negative. We get to 20 and 25 years, Jason, and we're looking at 100%. Now, I am not saying that this is a guarantee, but you got to look at the numbers and say, okay, well, if we were down and we were outside, then that's, that's not the norm. That's the exception to the rule. Yeah. But I say averages are averages for a reason. So looking at those numbers, let's compare that to the old casino. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to list off some of the best odds at the casino. So let's say you go in and hit the craps table. You have just under a 50% chance of making money at craps. Nice. Roulette, just under 50%. Blackjack, so the smart gambler, right? Uh-huh. The guy that really knows what he's doing. Maybe he's counting cards even. That's cheating. You'll get kicked. <laughs> hey, we're not encouraging no, that. And the equivalent to counting cards in the markets would be insider, insider trading, no, I think it's, which we also don't I encourage. I think the equivalent to counting cards in the market is fundamental analysis. I think. Oh, well, the reason- that's, that's not a bad point. <laughs> fundamental analysis? I, I might argue that it's technical analysis. Mm, chartists. Nah, <laughs> I, I, I'm with you on fundamentals. I'm more of a fundamental guy, but I like to play devil's advocate. Uh, Baccarat is another game with high odds, high odds for the casino, 45%. Mm-hmm. Kino, 25%. Um, slot machines are really hard to figure, but um, it, it seems to be somewhere in the 6 to 12% range. They actually print their odds on a label on the slot <laughs> machine. So. <laughs> So not good well, odds, most people not, play not at the better than the market. You know, they play. Back. Most people play the slots, buddy. <laughs> uh, so uh, and, and while we're talking about the Derby, uh, the best odds at the track uh, coming up here, or I guess looking back at last weekend, <laughs> as of the time that we recorded this podcast, the best odds were three to one. Not great. No, man. I, I think that we're better off in the markets. Yeah, I think to sum it up, the more you know about investing, the more comfortable you will be doing it. The more data you have, the better decisions you can make. History is a guide. It's no guarantee for sure. But based on historical data that you've got a really good chance that things are going to improve as far as the the basket of stocks that you own, if, as long as you're well diversified, are going to go up. In this country, we are blessed. It's been amazing for a really long time. No, nobody knows when it's going to be different this time. And I hear that every time we have a, a, a market impact or an election or, and my career is not even that old, but you can look back and you'll see that. But this time it's mm-hmm. different. How different though? Is it cataclysmically well, different? I, I would put it this way. And I tell folks a lot of times when we're going through those ups and downs, the averages are the averages for a reason. Look up the definition of average. It works out in your favor. Mm -hmm. 
The other thing I'd say is, look, we're at all-time highs right now. Are we are we bound to have a pullback? I don't know. Maybe. I, I could make a case the other way too. But here's the deal. This is not, you know, co- the COVID crash is not the last pullback in the markets that we'll ever see. But what I hear a lot of times is, well, what if what if the next one is different? Well, folks, if we don't recover from the next one, it'll be the first one ever that we haven't recovered from. That's an outlier. The averages are the averages for a reason. And like you said before, we're not saying there's no risk, but the risk actually works out in your favor uh, long term. So that's where I stand. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, seek the services of a competent professional. That way you can learn more about this. The internet is full of really good information, but also, of course, bad. So you need to be good at that, uh, at discerning. But yeah, man, uh, investing is not gambling. That's where we come down, right? It's not. (laughs) It it depends on how you do it, I suppose. But I don't think it's gambling. It's investing. Uh, I'd say it's an educated risk. (laughs) And so is most of life, right? How wise. You got it. All right, Jason, I think it's time for... Questions straight up. (laughs) Kelly asks, what is the difference between a traditional and a Roth IRA? I think as financial advisors, sometimes we take uh, for granted how much people know about all this stuff because we live in this This world. This gets asked all the time. I'll try to... It it really, we get it all the time. So let's address it here. The main difference, it's a tax question, Mm -hmm. okay? A traditional IRA similar to a 401k, you put money into, it's pre-tax. So your 401k, you put money in every paycheck. That's money that's not taxed. When it comes to your taxable income, you have a lower amount because you contributed pre-tax money. At some point in the future, when you take withdrawals, you will settle up on the taxes with Uncle Sam. And the premise there is that down the road, when you're retired, you'll probably be in a lower tax bracket. So it works out in your favor. Jason, I don't know about you, but I don't think I'll ever be in a lower tax bracket. And that's not a commentary on my income. Ooh, Mr. Uh, Moneybags. <laughs> I just think that that's where we are from a tax standpoint and the way things are going. A Roth IRA looks at it a little bit different. If you don't need the deduction, if you don't have a tax problem and you fall within the income limits, you can contribute money to retirement accounts in a Roth that's after tax. So you pay the tax on it when it goes in. And then if you do things the right way, when you take that money out in retirement, all the growth and the contributions, since you've already paid taxes, come out tax-free. That's a huge difference. Yeah. Um, so really, it's a tax question. We encourage the Roth IRA. I still think it's the best game in town. If your income puts you over the limits to contribute to the Roth IRA, your options are not exhausted. Maybe you have a Roth 401k. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's the old uh, Roth conversion or the backdoor Roth. Uh, but those are definitely topics to talk to your financial advisor about. Yeah, you want to you wanna take care with those because you could, you could mess up your taxes pretty bad. So you want to do it right. Yeah, another yep. another thing about the Roth and the reason that I'm I'm so pro Roth IRA or figuring out if you can do one is the flexibility of one is a lot better than a traditional IRA. So situations where you can get money out, of course, mm-hmm. taking a qualified distribution in a, a big chunk that's not counting as in, income tax, like a thirty, forty, a hundred thousand dollars at a time, that's a huge advantage in retirement for those big purchases. Yep. So, yeah, hopefully that helps with the the difference between the Roth and traditional. Thanks a lot, Caleb. We have another one, Jamie. What is the advantage of moving my old 401k? Okay, so let's just look at this from a couple of different angles, and I'll try to keep it brief, but some advantages to the 401k. While you're working, you might have a match from your employer. That's fantastic. It's free money. Take advantage of it. Some other advantages that you have in the 401k is usually some decent investment options with low cost. 
cost is not everything, but it factors into the equation. Advantages of moving your old 401k would be one, I think control. You left your employer for a reason. Do you want to leave your money behind too? Also, in a 401k, I don't care how robust the plan is, your options are going to be somewhat limited. We fully believe here that given unlimited investment options, your chances to do better performance-wise are infinite. <laughs> we should be able to do better. Also, the fact that you know working with a financial advisor that knows you personally, that knows your goals, you know that's factoring this into your financial plan is very, very helpful because there's nobody at the 401k provider that's going to help you with that. They're not going to give you advice. They're not going to give you tax advice. They're not going to give you investment advice. So I think the big thing is control and fitting it into the financial plan. Do you have anything to add? I think you summed it up pretty good. Definitely get some help with that. Ask somebody because sometimes it does not make sense to move it. I can think of one example is maybe you're retiring a little bit early and you're going to roll your 401k to an IRA. But if you're younger than 59 and a half, but older than 55, that may not be the best idea. Uh, 401ks and IRAs have different distribution rules. That's a great point. And I think a good financial advisor will tell you that. Honestly, if your financial advisor tells you, no, you should keep some of this money in the 401k, realize they probably get paid to manage money. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that, that should signal uh, that they're looking out in your best interest. Not always. There are some, some more withdrawal provisions that may be a little bit more flexible. Everybody's plan is a little bit different. So I think the uh, summary to that would be talk to your financial advisor, talk to your financial planner and, and find out what's best for your situation. That's, uh, I know, kind of a default answer, but I think it makes sense. Yeah. So awesome. Well, Jason, this is the part of the show when we invite our listeners to speak easy about whatever's on their mind. See what we did speak there? Easy. So this is a great place to share a recipe or a story or any thoughts, questions, and emotional outbursts. Jason, did anything come into the speak easy this yes, week? Yes, we had two comments and one emotional outburst this week. Uh, <laughs> oh. It wasn't that emotional. It was awesome. Uh, but Karen uh, responded to a Facebook story and said, listening as we're driving to North Carolina... Tell Jacob we said hi. Jacob is our intern, and they know Jacob, <laughs> I think, from scouting. Jacob is awesome. Karen, you are awesome. Thank you for listening. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, we got a comment from Nate that said, Just wanted to let you know that I have been enjoying your podcast. Keep up the good advice. I enjoy the honesty and being real. That's great, because we do hey, keep it real. We're nothing if we're not we're real, brother. It real. <laughs> All right, and... uh. Nick writes in, great episode three, he says. I'm a full-blown fan, and here I thought your music would do that. (laughs) (laughs) The album, Old Fashioned Finance, the album is coming out soon. Just stay tuned. I'm debating writing a second wrap-up. Nick, I hope you do. Please do. We might read it here. Side note, it's... The first one was fantastic. Side note, it snowed again here, which is great for wildfire season. The saddest truth about living out here. (laughs) The snow is not, however, great for business. Hope all is groovy over there. Nick, it is in fact groovy, and I'm, I tried to make groovy happen so long on the instant messenger circuit when I was like going through school, like when we had AOL instant messenger and and ICQ. Uh Yeah, ICQ. Wow. How old are you? I am young at heart. (laughs) Uh, So I tried to make groovy a thing and it never really caught on, but I thank you so much for your contributions to the speakeasy. There is a Facebook group. You can go and speakeasy at us. You can also email us. And Caleb will hit that up as he closes out the tab. 
That's right, folks. Thanks for having a drink with us this week. It is time to close out the tab. So if you want your story featured on the Old Fashioned Finance podcast, be sure to email us at speakeasy at oldfashionedfinance.com. We'd love to hear from you. Don't forget to write us a review on iTunes and share the show with someone you love or just someone who needs a little money muddling themselves. Old Fashioned Finance is brought to you by Blue Jay Financial Group. That's bluejfg.com and produced by Pottery Studios. We've been your hosts, Jason and Caleb. Cheers. Cheers. Blue Jay Financial Group, LLC, Blue Jay, is a registered investment advisor registered with the state of Ohio. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. The presence of this advertisement on this podcast shall not be directly or indirectly interpreted as a solicitation of investment advisory services to persons of another jurisdiction, unless otherwise permitted by statute. Follow-up or individualized responses to consumers in a particular state by Blue Jay in the rendering of personalized investment advice for compensation shall not be made without first complying with jurisdiction requirements or pursuant to an applicable state exemption. All verbal and written content on this presentation is for information purposes only. Opinions expressed herein are solely those of Blue Jay, unless otherwise specifically cited. Material presented is believed to be from reliable sources and no representations are made by our firm as to other parties' informational accuracy or completeness. All information or ideas provided should be discussed in detail with an advisor, accountant, or legal counsel prior to implementation.